right, there we are. Don't need to hear the sound of me taking off that mask. Like, just can't be a good sound, especially with facial hair. Uh, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Uh, welcome online. Those of us joining us online, good to see you. Uh, here we are, church in a pandemic. That's a song that I just made up and I shouldn't have. Uh, my name is Paul Stiver. I am one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. And uh, I'm also on staff with Hope Community Church. I work with our interns at downtown and our Leadership Development Institute. And then I also am, uh, my title is pastoral resident. And so I'm uh, just learning more pastoral skills as we look, my wife Allison and I look to church plant in the future. Uh, So this is a 1998 Toyota Sienna XLE. I mean, that's a beauty right there. This is not the exact one that I owned. Um, Mine was probably even more photogenic than this. But this was the car my parents gave me uh, for college, and then I had it until after college. Um, I, this car, I put this up there because I, when I had this car, uh, got in three car accidents in three months, uh, none of which were my fault. So this car was parked on the street, and someone, actually a guy, borrowed his father-in-law's Mustang and took it and turned a corner and smoked my van and totaled my van. And so after that, I got a Camry, and then uh, someone pulled the bumper off, parallel parking, and so I got that fixed. And then after that, I was driving down the road, and someone blew my rearview mirror off the side. They got too close to me. And in that, I bring that up because we're going to talk about power and powerlessness today. And that experience, uh, and gospel power versus worldly power, that experience was a time when, in a car accident in Israel, you kind of lose a little power, a little control. Uh, Financially, you might be shaken. Uh, you're not able to maybe not get, get around the way you needed to. And, and we've all had that. We've all had feelings of, of where we've all had opportunities to wield power and influence. And we've all had moments where we felt powerless. And, and Jesus has something to say about that. So if you're just joining us this week, we are in the midst of a sermon series called The Gospel Changes Everything. And so this is actually week six. And this, again, we're looking at gospel power, the good news of Jesus versus worldly power. And how does that change everything. So this week's message is titled, Turning the World Upside Down. And if you want to jump ahead, we're going to spend most of our time in Mark chapter 5, but we're going to kind of bounce around. We're going to be in a lot of text today, a lot of Bible. And so just real quick, Merriam-Webster on power defines power in, in many ways. And, and these were some of the words just to get our minds thinking about it. Ability, uh, capacity or capability, the ability to do something uh, control, authority, right, or influence. And so it's been said, uh, everyone has some level of power because everyone has some level of influence. And so we're going to be talking, though, today about worldly power as well. And so we use that term, the world. And if you're tuning in and you, you're maybe, or you're here today, and you're kicking the tires on Christianity, you're not sure if this is a faith you can get behind, you're going to hear this word world, and it might be a little confusing because the Bible has a complicated view of the world. Right there in Genesis 1, God is speaking things into existence. He brings about the creation of the world. That's the way that, we, that the Bible frames the story and gives coherence to it. And it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. God is looking out on the creation that he's made, the world, And he says, it's very good. 
But then we move forward in the story. We get into the New Testament and here John says, the Apostle John says, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And John's going to paint the world in this very different picture than Genesis chapter 1 does. When he's defining the world, he's talking about it's not God's space or it's not a space where people worship and honor God and live with him as their king. And yet it is God's space. The world is God's space if he's the creator. So we have this complex interrelation of God being the creator of a good world and yet people not honoring him as God. And so the world is often portrayed in the New Testament and in the Bible in those kinds of terms. And so we see right away in Genesis 3, the problem in our story is that sin has entered the world. God created very good and humankind has fallen into sin. And so we get this uh, coherence in our story of seeing that it was good and then sin entered the world. And so it says in Genesis 3, verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between your, you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And so sin enters the world. The serpent is cursed for what he did to help bring about that sin. And now there's this enmity. And we get this further consequence. God says to the woman, I will make your your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So right away in the story, we're already getting these power grabs. We've seen it was good, sin entered the world, and all all of a sudden there's disharmony in relationship. Wives are going to seek authority. Husbands are going to be domineering and controlling. As we move right into Genesis 4, the very next chapter of the Bible, we get the first murder. That there's something wrong with the way power is being used. Continuing on in the story, we go to Genesis chapter 11. If you're uh, new to the Bible, this is the famous Tower of Babel story. And it says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered from them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And so one commentator has said, this is the last time that we were actually one big happy family when we were building a name for ourselves in rebellion to God. We were united in rebellion, attempting to seize power, to make a name for ourselves and getting further and further from God. So he brings spiritual judgment. He scatters the peoples, which is 
Wild when you think about the beginning of the story and God creates man in his image and he tells them to bear fruit and multiply. They're in his image to reflect him and have dominion over the world and display who he is across the entire globe. And now it's gotten so bad that he's going to spread them across the entire globe with confused language because they've gone so far in rebellion, seeking power. And really then we see the rest of the story of the Bible and we look around our world today and we see this. That worldly power is forceful, dominating, controlling, winner-take-all, coercive, and it's about reigning primarily in nature. This is the rest of the story. And again, though, the Bible paints this as complex. This world is complicated. On a corporate level, we get something like this is the best picture I could find of the printing press, Johannes Gutenberg. right? And we get this beautiful invention. Now we can spread ideas across The world, people can have the Bible in their language. We can spread literature and beautiful stories. But we also get these things later on with the language and the spread of language, right? I'm not saying Facebook and Twitter are bad, but the way people treat each other on there. The way you talk to someone, the phrase is actually called toxic disinhibition. That because we're not face-to-face, I'm okay saying things about you I would never say if I was looking you in the eye. You're just an avatar to me. That's a dehumanization. So this world, corporately, we see this dehumanization in this complex thing. And people are complex too. This is a picture of a couple anti-heroes. This is a new, new thing, a newer thing in, in media and movies and TV is this anti-hero. An anti-hero is the main character of a story, but one who doesn't act like a typical hero. Anti-heroes are often a little villainous. These are so popular these days because people are complex, right? We don't, people aren't just uniform. We have good and bad sides to us. And really, what is an anti-hero if not someone who is trying to reclaim power when they were made powerless? The example on the left is Walter White from the TV show Breaking Bad. He was rendered kind of powerless in society, weak, and then he even got cancer. He was even more just kind of powerless. And so the story then follows him trying to reclaim that power. He undergoes a radical transformation in that process, and you find yourself rooting for that. So so it's corporately, it's complex. Power and structures and systems in individually, the way we use power. And so we might look for worldly power in different ways. These are just some examples. This, this sermon could easily have been five sermons. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about power, so it's very condensed. But these are just some examples of worldly power that I, that I want to self-express. I want to self-promote. I want to make a name for myself. This is actually something Gen Z is struggling with. Gen Z has to, they feel like every social media post has to represent a certain image. That's got to be crippling. And it's leading to anxiety and depression because there's this need, I have to make a name, I have to self-promote, I need to get the likes and the recognition. We could have spending power, just that, just that comfort that comes, that capital, that ability to just go out and buy something. Cultural power that I, if I just want my agenda pushed forward, if, if my agenda gets pushed forward, we'll be, this will be a better place. The right political ruler, it's not lost on me that we have an election coming up, right? And, and how often it's easy to just say, if we just get that person in, 
Things will change. Things will be better. Things will be fixed. Religious power. Seeking to exert authority. But is that us? Are we looking for worldly power in these areas? In other areas, are we grasping for power? And if, if this is maybe what we would say, oh, okay, maybe that's what people outside the church do. But do people inside the church really do these grasps for power? Let's look back at God's people here. And just a couple of passages kind of retracing God's people. And so first from Deuteronomy 6, this is after they've been delivered in the Exodus. God has brought them out by displaying his power and delivered them. In the midst of that deliverance now, he's calling them to be a people, his people. He's covenanting. He's uniting himself to them. And he tells them this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So God is foreshadowing, you're going to get into this promised land that I'm bringing you into. Be careful, because you're going to want to forget that I was the one who brought you there. I was the one who delivered you. That you didn't earn this, this was my grace to you. And then later in the story, it's so helpful to read the Bible and kind of that creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This would be in that redemption story. And yet not, we're waiting. But later in the story in 1 Samuel, it says, and we've talked about this in other sermons in this series. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Samuel was the prophet at that time at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So God's people do this too. Despite knowing his delivering and providing power, they reject him. Give us a king. We want a worldly king. We want someone who goes out and fights our battles for us. And the whole time, God is saying, I'm your king. We continue on in the story. Isaiah chapter 30. And the prophet is pronouncing a woe over the people. He says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help who look to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge, but Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zion and their envoys have arrived in Hanes, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. And so this is now in the exile and God's saying, don't go to Egypt. And why is that? Why is that relevant? Why is that important in the story? They were making a defense pact with Egypt. They were in battle, or they're facing battle, and they said, we'll unite ourselves to Egypt because they're powerful. That's how we'll be safe and secure and protected. If we're united to Egypt, we'll follow our own plans and do this. And so facing the circumstances, unclear circumstances, they grasp for control. 
We'll unite ourselves. We'll make an alliance, as God says, not by my spirit. An alliance with Egypt. With the world. Do we do this? Do we grasp for control? Do we ignore God? Do we get bitter at him? Do we make pacts with the world? Do we lose hope? Do we unite ourselves with things of worldly power? And so we have this picture of the world seeking power and this picture of the church seeking power. So if the world and even God's people, and again, world in quotes, right? The the complex picture the Bible paints of the world. And even God's people can look for power in all the wrong places. Where should we look? Where is true power to be found? And so here we'll get to our passage here, Mark chapter 5. And I'm not going to read it all at once. I'm going to kind of go down the line here. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus has just come from healing the demon-possessed man. That we, who, what is your name? And the demon says, Legion, for we are many. This man was possessed with many demons. And Jesus casts them into the pigs. And the pigs go into the sea and drown. He's showing his power over the supernatural world. And then here it says, when Jesus had again, so now he's famous. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And just real quick for context, because of this disease she was suffering from, this illness, this issue, she was labeled in that religious culture at the time unclean. She was not allowed to go into worship because she was ritually, ceremonially impure. She was not allowed to draw near to God in the space where God was meeting with the people. And she did not, in that culture, which was an honor-shame culture, have the right to approach a man, especially a teacher like Jesus. That is a man of authority. You cannot just go face-to-face or you will bring shame on himself and yourself. So we go to a a quote from D.E. Garland here, a commentary on this, in this passage. We have already Jairus and the woman. He says, The two main characters interacting with Jesus here occupy opposite ends of the economic, social, and religious spectrum. Jairus is a male, a leader of the synagogue. As a man of distinction, he has a name. Jairus has honor and can openly approach Jesus with a direct request, though he shows the greatest deference. By contrast, the woman is nameless, and her complaint renders her ritually unclean. She is walking pollution in that society. Her malady 
therefore, separates her from the community and makes her unfit to enter the synagogue, let alone the temple, which at the time was the space where God would meet with his people. She has no honor and must slink about and approach Jesus from behind, thinking that she must purloin her healing. And I don't know what that word means. I should have looked it up. Uh, Anyway. So this is a risk that she takes. And she does it because she thinks, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And what does Jesus do with that? We continue on. In verse 30, it says, At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Real quick, this isn't, he didn't have then less power. It's not like a battery. He has all the power and he could feel that some left. That some was given to someone else. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. He doesn't let it go. Then the woman, knowing what happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He made her come to him. That's why he stopped and looked around. And then she finds out it was her faith that made her well. And he calls her daughter. And there's something we need to see here. And we see this a lot, especially early on in the Gospel of Mark. That despite the fact that she was unclean, she doesn't make Jesus unclean. He makes her clean by his power. Despite the fact that she had shame, her shame doesn't impact Jesus. He brings her honor. And he calls her daughter. He looks her in the eye and calls her daughter. That's honor. And real quick, it's not about when we read this and we say, man, I just got to have faith then. I really got to buckle down and have faith. It's not about the power of her faith. It's about the object of her faith. It's about that she put her faith in the one who has power. But we can't stop there because also Jairus is sitting there like, okay, can we do my thing? My daughter's dying. So it says, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Continuing, it says, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion With people crying and wailing loudly, he went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And went in where the child was, he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this 
and told them to give her something to eat. Get her a quick bite. I love that part. Get her some oatmeal. Uh, with berries. And two things, we got to see two things here in this narrative. Jesus both subverts and utilizes power. He subverts power in the fact that in that culture, he actually deals with this, this woman first. That this shameful woman in that culture is who he takes care of first, not the ruler. So we can't always get a handle on Jesus and how he uses power. He heals the unclean, nameless woman first, not the ruler's daughter, but then he does show power. He takes her by the hand because in Jesus' power, in his hand, death is nothing but sleep. It's just like sleep. And he says to her, arise. And she gets up and someone brings her some oatmeal. And this is, this is the story now. This is the story we're telling. This is what we're getting after. There's powers that be. There's two great powers the Bible lays out that need to be dealt with. Sin and death. But if we stop just here in Mark, we have an incomplete story. The story is not complete until the cross of Christ. I want to preface for that with this quote from Diane Langberg. She's a, a psychologist, a Christian psychologist, who is 35 years doing work with trauma and people that have experienced some of the, the deepest pits this world has to offer. And I love the way she talks about Jesus from her angle. She says, He came and bent over the corpse of this world. He came and entered into this realm where evil holds sway over human lives and souls. He traded clean for dirty, freedom for slavery, and peace for torment. What does he do? He gives people, he makes people clean. He sets them free and he brings his peace. That the cross has to happen because we need a few things to happen. We need to see and we need to know that we can be forgiven of our sins. If the problem in the narrative, in our story, in the Bible, and in our world is sin, we need somebody to deal with sin and death. We're going to put these rulers and authorities to open shame, which is what he does on the cross in his humiliation. And then we need to see who God is. Commentary continues. It says, Jesus triumphs over death. And again, back to the Mark passage. The good news that is proclaimed in this section is that in Jesus' presence, storms subside, demons beat a retreat, infirmities are put right, and death loses its hold. In 539, Jesus declares the girl's death to be merely sleep. This is not some cagey medical diagnosis, a comforting euphemism, or a general eschatological just future hope. He calls it sleep because he wills in this particular case to make death as impermanent as sleep by raising the girl to life. At the same time, however, one must also be sensitive to the reality that no matter how genuine or desperate the faith, all are not healed or saved from death. One must look beyond the moment of suffering to the eternal significance of Jesus' power. 
We don't stop in the Mark passage. We look to the cross and see the eternal significance. The power is related to the kingdom of God, which is present, but which is yet to be fully manifest. In the meantime, we will suffer from maladies of death. Our faith is in God's power to conquer death, not simply restore things as they were. We can face the tragedies of everyday existence with the confident faith that God is not through with us. And when we go back to that passage, there's so many distinct differences that Jairus and the woman have, but they have one thing in common. When they see Jesus, they fall at his feet. They both fall at his feet. Because when all else fails, Christ does not. They renounce their claims on power. It's been taken from them. They're desperate. They need help. They repent and believe. Because we can't stop in the narrative. We have to go to the cross. It says in Mark chapter 10 then, what is Jesus about? Why is he here? Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. He says about his people, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross reorients our relationship with power. He says, I came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus' power turns the world upside down. That on the cross, the truly powerful one becomes weak in full submission to the Father in order to deal with the sin and the death that I deserve once for all, for all who believe. That Christ's symbol of power is not a tower, but a tomb. It's the grave that he walks out of. It's the cross he was slain on. And so we have two big questions. And all right, if the cross reorients our power, makes us think entirely differently from the world and how we view power. How should we use our power? If everyone has some level of power, some level of influence, how should we use it? And secondly, how should we respond when we feel powerless? When something happens, when circumstances or events make us feel out of control. One more quote from this commentary. It says, dovetailing the stories, and again back to the Mark passage, of two such dissimilar individuals reveals that being male, being ritually pure, holding a high religious office, being, sorry, I can't, it's like blocked on here, I can't see Provide no advantage in approaching Jesus. Sorry, I missed a couple words. Being female, impure, dishonored, and destitute are no barrier to receiving help. God always takes the side of those who have been denied rights and privileges, the oppressed and poor. In God's kingdom, the nobodies become somebody. And when we really think about it, when we look at the story of Jesus, when we look at the Bible, when we see who he is, we're all nobodies. 
In other words, the only thing that avails with God and Jesus is one's faith. Health, wholeness, and salvation are not extended to just the lucky few who already have so much of everything. But neither does Jesus set the lowly over against the lofty. Faith enables all, honored and dishonored, clean and unclean, to tap into the merciful power of Jesus that brings both healing and salvation. All are equals before Jesus. Jesus doesn't look on outward power. He looks on the heart. But we, there's no second-class citizens in Christ's kingdom. We all have access to mercy and healing and salvation. So then how should we respond? First, if how should we respond to power? Well, first of all, we can't look elsewhere for God's power. We can't look to Egypt. We can't look to the things of this world to do for us what only God can do. And that's a hard issue. That really is. We have to be willing to investigate, where am I becoming wedded to the world and not to Christ? Secondly, maybe if you're in this room or you're listening online and you feel like, I actually, I've misused power, that I've had influence and authority and I've hurt people with it. How should I respond? Well, that's simple. Go to Jesus. Look to him for forgiveness. Repent. In safety, seek to make restitution. Trust in God's forgiveness. Allow the incident to humble you and make you more like Christ. And lastly, it, uh, in a message on power, it's not lost on me that there might be people listening and with an earshot of this that have had power misused against them. You maybe have been maligned, mistreated, mangled by someone in power over you. How do I respond to that? How do I respond to the shame, the pain of that? You just have to know you're not unclean to Jesus. He took your shame and he took it with him to the cross. That your faith has made you well, that Jesus delights in you, that you are beautiful in his sight. So that's how we respond to those things. But it's not the end of the story. The rest of the story has to come. And so it's not the end of the world story. The Holy Spirit is going to come in power. And these verses are from, again, the, the story of the Bible. The book of Acts comes after Jesus has done this. He's gone to the cross. And now he's risen from the dead, but he's still on earth. He hasn't yet ascended to the Father. And so after his death and resurrection, <clears throat> the disciples are trying to make sense of it. And it says in the beginning of the book of Acts, the story of the church. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to overthrow these Roman rulers? Are we going to reign in power again? Right here, right now. Is it time, Jesus? But Jesus, again, he has a subversive message. We don't see it coming. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you know the book of Acts, the very next chapter, the Spirit comes in power on God's people, and guess what happens? There's a lot of languages again. Why? God is undoing that spiritual judgment of Genesis 11, and he's going to equip a people to take the gospel out into the world to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's what they do in the midst of great persecution. In the Holy Spirit's power, they proclaim the word. They do justice. They love and serve. To the point where it says in Acts 17, in the midst of persecution, I I just love this phrase, these men, and it's men and women who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, that the gospel is upside down power. It's the Spirit in God's people proclaiming his word and saying what you see isn't all there is. And so through the proclamation of the gospel, Jesus subverts the two things that hold the greatest power in our world today, sin and death. As we proclaim and live out the gospel by fighting sin and injustice in our own lives and in the world, we tell the powers that be that they have an expiration date and we turn the world upside down as more and more people go from death to life and are restored to living with God as king. Let me go back to looking for power. Are you trusting in one of these today? Maybe there's a promotion at work. Really put all my hope in that. Gosh, if we could just get a bigger house. Again, houses aren't bad. Promotions aren't bad. Don't hear me saying that. But are you hoping in it as an ultimate thing? Cultural power. It's my agenda. This election coming up. Boy, I don't know. If my candidate doesn't get elected, I don't know what's going to happen with this world. Religious power, again, the gospel of of Jesus brings upside-down power. Because in Christ, self-promotion becomes Christ-promotion. We want to see him exalted and glorified. He must become greater. I must decrease. Spending power, this ability to just own things, becomes generosity. Cultural power, I want to promote Christ's agenda through doing justice and sharing the gospel. That the right political ruler is actually King Jesus. And we're waiting for that day, as Brian talked about last week, kind of this two world, two kingdoms. We're waiting, we don't see it that way, but we're waiting for that day when all of this is God's space. As Peter says at the end of 2 Peter, which we went through just recently, we're waiting for the day when we live in the place where righteousness dwells, where it's only good. As we sing, loud and honor, where it's only good, all is holy, that within thy walls is stored. We're waiting for that day because we don't see it now, but who are we trusting in to deliver it? And religious power is service and proclamation of the gospel. So again, we go back to that worldly power. Worldly power, forceful, dominating, controlling, winner-take-all, coercive, and about reigning primarily in nature. Is this how you wield power? Is this how you want to wield power? Is this you? Because when we see the change the gospel brings. It means Christ's power in us makes us people who aren't forceful but bold. Not dominating, but gentle. Not controlling, but submissive. Not winner take all, but slave to all. Not coercive, but a witness. And not about reigning primarily in nature, but demonstrating that we live under the reign of the true king. 
How should we respond? The Apostle Paul says it brilliantly at the end of Romans 8. When he's kind of in this, he's been talking about the Holy Spirit. And now we have the Spirit. And we've talked about in this series, we're groaning. We're waiting. We're longing for God to restore things. That's a good feeling. When we see things not as they are and it aches and pains us, that's good. It points and echoes to that there's something greater to come. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and also is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we try and have coherence, when we look to the story, We see this is not some cold universe with which we have just been slotted into a cruel fate. That this world is in the hands of the personal God who bends his knee and lifts the head of the downtrodden, sinners like us. He gives us a security that nothing can take away, a future and a hope, And because of that, we become those kind of people. Humane, considerate, grace-filled. And if we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, to that we say, so was Christ. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And because he did that, I've been set free. You've been set free. So let's be unified with him because as the gospel says, power is upside down and even as being like sheep to be slaughtered, what does it say in the very next verse? That makes us more than conquerors. So as we close in gospel application, do you see the power of Jesus? you see the way that he reorients power and also uses it in service of us by giving his life? Maybe this is the first time that you're really hearing this gospel message. Maybe this is the first time that you have understood the Bible that way. The narrative the Bible is trying to proclaim that sin is the problem and that actually Christ's death on the cross is the only thing that could deal with it. And that in his resurrection power, he can actually give, make us new creations. He transforms us. He brings us from death to life.
and old to new. Do you need to believe that today? Do you need to give your life to Jesus today? Put your faith in him. Fall down at his feet the way that they did in our narrative, what we saw today. See your desperation and see his power and know that your faith has made you well. As Paul says, it is God who justifies. And then maybe you have that. Maybe you're not a first-time believer, you're a thousandth-time believer, right? We need this gospel over and over. And maybe there's something creeping in to your heart. Something creeping into an area of your life. And what area of your life do you need to repent on the spot right now from pursuing worldly power? Is there something you're hoping in? Something that's driving you nuts? Something you can't stop thinking about? Something you've fallen into? And you can repent. That just means to turn. It just means to change. We can seek his help and his power. He actually heals us. We're going to be moving to a time of communion here. And uh, the communion's back in the back. If you didn't get one, the little like creamer cup, there's the bread and the, and the juice. Uh, <laughs> like what Brian calls it that. Uh, at Hope, here's what we say about communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. To take communion with us, we only ask that you'd be a follower of Christ. That you'd be someone that says, yes, I'm trusting in his body broken for me and his blood shed for me. And only by resting in Jesus then can we stop grasping for power and be free to serve. And that's what we're going to be reminded of as we take communion. We're going to finish with two songs here. We can take time to reflect, think through these questions. Pray, talk to Jesus, and then feel free to stand and worship with us as well. Please pray with me. Dear God, we thank you so much that you sent your Son and that he became weak for us, dying on a cross in submission to your will to pay the penalty for our sin, to put the rulers and authorities to open shame, to conquer the grave, and then you sent your spirit so that we too can become more than conquerors. So God, as we think about these things, would you help us to to know what, what you want from us? Meet us and just help us worship you in this time. Be honored and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.